It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 22. <clears throat> um, of the Names of God series, when, when most people hear that we're going to be walking through the names of God, this is probably the one that first comes to mind of like, you are going to do that one, right? Uh, because this is, this is the one that I think as we're you know, going through and declaring names of God, uh, this is the one that most of us tend to gravitate toward, probably because this is the one that is mentioned the most often or the most frequent. And I want to look at this idea of uh, Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide. And it, it's, the whole story is in Genesis 22. Uh, but one of the things about Bible study is if you're going to study the Bible at, at any point, uh, you have to study it in the context. And to truly understand what's happening in Genesis 22, uh, you need to look back at Genesis 21. And of course, you could keep doing this and be like, well, then we just need to start at Genesis 1 and just read through the whole thing, which could be really fun this morning. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at Genesis, the end of Genesis 21. Uh, it's interesting, as you follow the life of Abraham, uh, God is calling Abraham from from this uh, Mesopotamian region called Ur, uh, down near the Tigris and the Euphrates River. He goes up and spends some time in, in northern, uh, north of Israel in this place called Haran, and eventually makes his way down to the Promised Land. And uh, Abraham is following God's lead by faith. And what you actually begin to see what's going on in Abraham is that Abraham is constantly trusting and living in faith in his God. And God repeatedly is showing forth his nature and his character, his faithfulness, saying, hey, will you trust me? And Abraham walks in that and is like, okay, God has proved himself. Okay, I'll, I'll follow again. And, and it's like God is just consistently giving light and step to Abraham. And as Abraham follows God, it's like Abraham's trust and faith in his God increases and grows and expands. As you get into chapter 21, it's interesting Abraham is making a covenant with Abimelech down in Beersheba, which is kind of the southern portion of, of ancient Israel. And they make this covenant, they dig a well, he, he, he makes a tree. And we actually looked at this entire story back in uh, the seventh study of this series. So if you want to go back and, and look at all this, we did this in uh, study number seven. Uh, but we're walking through this, and at the end of this whole passage, Abraham is looking at God's faithfulness. He's looking at who God is, and he gives another name of God, and it's the name El Olam. And the name El Olam is often translated the everlasting God. And again, we, we study the whole El Olam name out on, in study seven. So again, go back and study that if you want to. But what's really interesting about this idea of the everlasting God, it's this idea that, that he is eternal, that he is before time. You know, he, he's outside of the realm of time. He's, he's the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, you know, the alpha and the omega kind of an idea. Uh, as you walk through this idea <clears throat> um, of the everlasting God, you get this notion that God is so grand, that, that he is so big. Let me just give you two passages. Here's the one from Genesis where Abraham gives the name El Olam. It says that Abraham, or Abraham planted a teramis tree at Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh, El Olam, the everlasting God. And I think one of the best pictures of this whole scene is in Isaiah. Isaiah uses that idea of Olam, speaking of our, the greatness of our God. And he says this, 
in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, Elohim, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. And as we were walking through that study, we, we looked at this idea of the universe. Because Isaiah says, in, right before the scene, that God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Isn't that, a, isn't that a great thought? He doesn't just hold, like, the Milky Way galaxy. He holds the universe. And if you've ever done a study of how big that supposedly is, it is awe-inspiring to realize that God can hold the entirety of the universe in the palm of his hand, and yet he knows the number of hairs on your head, or lack thereof, right? That, that, that God is intimately relational with us, and yet he is so grand, and he's so big, and he's so over the top. And so can you imagine, here's Abraham, and he's looking at his God, and he says, wow, God, you, you've been so good. God, you are so faithful. God, you are so, you are so everlasting. I can trust you. Why? Because you, you can hold the universe in the palm of your hand. If, if you can orchestrate all of that, then surely I can trust you. So that's the context. So then look at the very next verse in Genesis 22. It says, now it happened after these things. Well, what things is it referring to? Well, it's after the time that Abraham had the covenant with Abimelech and Abraham declared God as Elohim. So here's Abraham saying, God, I can trust you. God, you are great. God, you are everlasting. God, hey, God, I know you are faithful. So then after these things, it says that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And it's interesting, as you get into the story, you realize that there is a test that is taking place. Uh, listen to what one author said about this test. Uh, Nathan Stone, in his book, The Names of God, he says this, It is the story of the last and greatest crisis in the life of Abraham. Every event in his life has led up to this supreme hour from the time of his call to a high destiny through every visiture, visitude, whatever that word is, in other words, through every little crevice and cranny of, uh, of his life, through every joy, through every trial or failure, through every measure of success and blessing, through every hope and promise and assurance, all had been in preparation for this event. In other words, everything's been building up to this point. Everything's been leading Abraham to this moment of, all right, Abraham, I am Elolam. Will you actually trust me? And God's going to ask something incredibly awkward. I want your son. So let's read the passage. This is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. 
Then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? But Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place at which God had told, them, told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and put him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel, the messenger of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And God said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. So Abraham lifted up his eyes and beheld, or behold, there was a ram after it had been caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. Yahweh will provide. As it is said this day, in the mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. I love this passage. There, there's so many beautiful layers to this story. And again, we're just going to be skimming the, the surface. But I would encourage you at some point to do a deep dive in Genesis 22 because it is such a grand picture of who our God is. I want to just kind of walk through this a little bit with you and, and kind of give some, just a little bit of insight and maybe just some, some thoughts. Uh, but even before we do that, I want to talk really quickly about one thing since it's in the passage, and it's this idea of first words. Uh, there's something interesting in Scripture that if you're doing Bible study and you look up a key term, for example, in our case, worship, and you look up where that word or that term is used for the first time in Scripture, a lot of times the first instance of where that word shows up gives definition or kind of the parameters of how to understand the word. Does that make sense? For example, if you look up the word love, the first time love shows up, it kind of gives you insight of how to understand that concept. In our passage in Genesis 22, it's the first time the word worship shows up in Scripture. And again, here, here's the passage. It says that Abraham said to his young men in verse 5, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, and we will worship and we will return to you. So this is the first time that the word worship shows up in Scripture. And it actually gives you an insight to understand worship. That, that worship biblically is not just, it's not singing, right? We often equate worship with singing, and I think it's because of our churches right? The pastor will stand up and say like, all right, let's stand and worship, which is what we are doing. We are worshiping. But do you realize that when we sit down and the pastor stands up to preach, guess what that's called? Worship. And when we pass the plate and you give the preacher $50, just kidding, that's not what you're doing. You're giving Jesus $50. But, but you know, when you're passing the plate and you're having tithes and offerings, guess what that's called? Worship. And then that afternoon, you're right, you get together and, and you have a potluck. Do you know what that's called? That's called worship. And then you go for an afternoon nap. Oh, praise the Lord. You know what that's called? My favorite kind of worship. And then, because as you work through this idea of worship in Scripture, though it is sometimes associated with singing, most of the time, it's just life. In fact, Paul in the New Testament says things like, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink 
Do all for the glory of God. Dude, everything in your life is to be worshipped. If you are a believer, then your life is an instrument of worship unto the Lord. So if you go back then to the first instance of worship, what you begin to notice is that this idea of sacrifice is associated with worship. That there's this givenness in worship. That you cannot worship unless it costs you something. Which I think is why in Romans chapter 12, Paul says things like that you're to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What is it? That's worship. Because worship costs us something. Does that make any sense? So just as a fun side Bible study note, uh, just look for these times where the word shows up the first time. And a lot of times it'll just give you an aha or an insight to how to understand the concept. But as you come into the story, again, I just want to give some big picture stuff. Here's this, here's this man, Abraham. And isn't it interesting that Abraham has a beloved son? Now, we know that there's this son named Ishmael, but the son Ishmael was of the flesh. In fact, he was rejected and he actually was sent away. God did not bless the work of the flesh, Ishmael. And in the biblical construct, this is such a cool concept to me, Abraham had Isaac, who is known as his only begotten son. It's his only son. Look at this passage. Look at what God says in Genesis 22, verse 2. Then God said, take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So do you realize that Isaac is the only begotten son of the father? What does that sound like to you? There is this beautiful parallel that begins to happen in this passage where this entire story is what we would call around here a Christophany. It is a picture in the Old Testament of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So when you come into John 3.16, which you know incredibly well, listen, just I want you to hear it afresh. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So here is God who has an only begotten son, who is the beloved son of the father. And here's Abraham, the father, who has an only begotten son, beloved of the father. Are you starting to see a parallel? Okay, let's follow this through. Uh, God says, I want, you, I want you to go up to this mountain. And so they, they travel. And isn't it interesting, after three days, they come to the mountain. Now you can say, well, what's the big deal about that? I don't know. But it's not by accident. And by the way, this happens several times in Scripture, where it's after three days. After three days. For example, uh, we looked at one of these earlier in Exodus 15, talking about Jehovah Rapha, that God is a healer. And as they left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, after three days, they're in the wilderness with no water. You start to notice that God has a pattern in Scripture of after three days, building up where? To the sun. Because it's after three days that he rose from the grave. So there's a pattern here. Just want, just want to point it out. Uh, so here's Abraham and Isaac, and, and they get to the mountain. And Abraham looks at his two servants and says, hey, stay here with the donkey. We're going to go up on the mountain. We're going to worship. And we, isn't this interesting? We will come back. Abraham knew that Isaac was going to return. 
Though he may not have understood how it was going to happen, he knew that, all right, I'm going to literally offer Isaac as a sacrifice, but the promise is through Isaac. I know that Isaac, is, he has to return with me, and I have no idea how God's going to do it, but I trust the nature of my character of my God. And so they start to climb the mountain. And it says in verse 6 that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. I want you to ponder something. Do you realize that Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain? What does that sound like? Well, it sure sounds like Jesus. Here's what John 19 verse 17 says. And they took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own wood for sacrifice, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Isn't it interesting? Here's, here's Isaac. He's going up the mountain. Now, this is totally, this is speculation. Okay, so don't, don't read into this. But do you realize it says that Abraham told his servants, hey, me and the boy or me and the lad, depending on the translation, we'll go up and we're going to return to you. And I don't know what you grew up with, but in, in my flannel board theology of Sunday school, the picture of Isaac was like either like a five-year-old uh, or he's like, you know, maybe 12, but he's young. I don't think that was possible because from what I can at least find is that the typical amount of wood for sacrifice, for any sacrifice, like a lamb, let alone a person, uh, was over 60 pounds, which means a five-year-old is not carrying 60 pounds of wood up a mountain, folks. And most scholars, when you, when you kind of look into this a little bit, most scholars are saying likely Isaac was probably in his 20s. Now, I can't prove this, but it would not surprise me at all if we get to heaven and we watch the replay. I, I can't prove that biblically either, but we have eternity, so I'm sure God will give us the director's cut of history. Uh, but anyway, again, I can't prove that, but... Sounds, sounds awesome. Uh, but, but as God unveils the depth of some of this stuff, it would not surprise me at all to realize that Isaac was probably around 33. Why? Because the parallel is just too perfect. In fact, the Hebrew word for the word lad or the word boy here supposedly can be anywhere from five years old up to mid-30s, from what I could discover. So, so we have no idea how old he was, but we at least know he was old enough to carry 60-plus pounds of wood up the mountain. Isn't that interesting? And so here's Isaac carrying wood up a mountain. Here's Jesus carrying wood up a mountain for sacrifice. That's not by accident. And as you get to the top of the mountain, you realize this whole scene is showing forth the faith of the father, the faith of Abraham. Uh, let me just read a couple quotes too. I think they're just interesting. Tony Evans in his book on, on the names of God says this, <clears throat> that Abraham suddenly finds himself in a mess of contradictions. He's in a theological contradiction because God's instruction goes against the promise of a future nation and the mandate not to kill. He's in an emotional contradiction as his faith now collides with his affections. He's facing a social contradiction because he will never become a great name in his community if he kills his son. And the great name was promised by God in Genesis 12, by the way. He's also in a relational contradiction because sacrificing Isaac would create great conflict in his marriage. Well, that would probably be an understatement, <laughs> you know? Uh, Evans goes on and says this. 
listen to this. I thought this was interesting. Trials are adverse circumstances that God introduces or allows in order to identify where we are spiritually and to prepare us for where he wants us to go. And there's God's not going to waste trials and hardships and circumstances. And Evan says this, Abraham was in the midst of a terrible test. He faced a choice between the blessing and the blesser. And God wanted to see which one he would choose. Isaac had been Abraham's blessing, but God wanted to know which meant more to him. God or Isaac, the giver of the blessing or the blessing itself. And isn't it interesting that, that in this test of faith, Abraham, though he did not know how God was going to do it, knew God would do something. In fact, here's Isaac saying, uh, Dad, uh, problem. I got the wood, you got the fire and the knife. Where's the sacrifice? And do you know what Abraham's response was? Listen to this. And Abraham said, God will provide it. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Son, it's going to be okay. God, God's going to provide it. In, in fact, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And Abraham considered, think about this, that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. So here's this idea that Abraham, though he had never seen someone being raised from the dead, he did see a glorious miracle in the fact that his wife, at 90 years old, bore Isaac. He knew that God could do a miracle. He knew that God could supply something. And the writer of Hebrews says, do you realize that Abraham had such faith in the character and the nature of his God that he knew that, even though it makes no sense, that if I bring that knife down and I slay my son, God could bring him back to life. Why? Because I know that God promised that Isaac was going to be the inheritance of the promise, which means he can't die. I mean, he might die, but he's going to have to come back to life. Does that make any sense? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, that knife was cutting into Abraham's own heart all the while, yet he took it. Unbelief would have left the knife at home, but genuine faith takes it. I thought that was a great insight. It would have been easy for, for Abraham to be like, oh, bummer. Forgot it. But do you realize that he so trusted in the character and the nature of his God, he says, I will obey. In fact, when you read the whole story of Genesis 22, what you find is that there are all these action words that, that Abraham didn't complain. Abraham didn't even ask questions. Abraham just went out and did it. He saddled the donkey. He took the son. He took the knife. He went up the mountain. And you just you start to notice that Abraham just said, okay, God, if you ask it, I'll do it. I'm so convicted by that. Because do you realize that Abraham did not have the fullness of the revelation of Scripture? He had God's word in a very simplistic sense. And yet Abraham, in audacious faith, says, I will, I'll believe you. 
And yet here we are in the 21st century, we have the fullness of the revelation of God in his word. We have Christian history. And yet aren't we a little trepid to fully trust and obey? It's like we'll say, well, God, I don't know really, I don't think you really mean all that. Because that's crazy. And yet here's Abraham with his most precious thing that he has, the beloved son. Without all the revelation that we have, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to actually enable this thing to take place, and Abraham by faith just says, okay, I will trust. I will do it. I know your character. Do we know our God that well? That convicts me, folks. We have no excuse in the days in which we live not to be triumphant believers in Christ Jesus, to actually walk by faith and obedience and knowing the character and the nature of our God. We have so much more revelation than Abraham had. And yet, by faith, Abraham obeyed. That convicts me. Uh, Several weeks ago, I was reading through this book on some of the geography of Israel, and this scholar who was writing this mentioned this thing in passing, and I was like, that is so fascinating. And I've been pondering on it, and since it is in our passage, I just wanted to bring this up. It's a particular Hebrew word. God says, I want you to, you know, Abraham, and Abraham responds to God saying, here I am. And that word in Hebrew is hene. So listen to what hene means, this here I am statement. So Abraham responded to God with hene, here I am. This word, hene, is a strong Hebrew word that implies being ready to obey, fully available, prepared, and ready for action. In other words, it was a direct way of saying, I'm ready. Isn't that interesting? It signifies a turning point or a life-changing moment that requires some kind of decision or action. So Abraham, in our story, was replying to God, I hear your call. I understand what you're asking of me. I am prepared and ready to do it because I know you. And although I cannot fathom what it means that you are asking me to sacrifice my only son, I respond with Hene. In fact, it shows up twice in our passage. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, and do you realize that the first words out of Abraham's mouth is, I'm ready. What do you want? Hey, I'm in a position ready to obey. And then he follows through and he's up on the mountain. And as he takes the knife and brings it up and is about to bring it down on Isaac, do you realize that Abraham had the full intention of killing Isaac? Now we know the story. So we're like, okay, he probably raised it up. And he's like, okay, God, ready? Three, two, two and a half, two and a quarter, one, one and three quarters. I mean, that's how we tend to understand the story because we're waiting for God to step in. But you realize that Abraham, by faith, says, God, I will trust you. And so he picks up the knife and is about to bring it down when the messenger says, Abraham. And you know what Abraham responds with? I'm ready. What do you need? Hene. I'm responding. I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm posed for action. Could you imagine if we lived in that kind of a state all the time? It's what we've said before. It's like that predecided yes. Where, hey, God, before you even ask anything, I'm in a posture of readiness. 
God, God, I, I'm going to posture myself in humility. God, I, I want you to speak. And God, no matter what you say, I, my response is going to be yes. So, so God, you, if you want to confront something, God, if you want to send me somewhere, God, if you want to do anything in my life, you already have a predecided yes, I'm ready. You have my hene. Here I am. I think that would change how we would live, don't you think? And it seemed like Abraham, because he knew the character and the nature of his God, he knew the fact that God was El Olam, this everlasting God. Abraham was in this constant posture of saying, God, here I am. God, I'm ready. God, 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 I'm ready for action. What do you want? What do you need? Here I am. Just What if we lived like this? And do you realize how much faith it had to have taken for Abraham to say, okay, I'm actually going to sacrifice my son. But maybe from the other side, which is the one that we don't typically think of, do you realize how much faith the son had to have had in the father? Abraham is over 100 years old because Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. So however old Isaac is, Abraham is 100 plus that. Right? So, so if Isaac happens to be 20, Abraham is 120. I don't know about you. But if I was up against a 100-year-old, and that 100-year-old came up to me and says, I'm going to kill you, I would go, No. You realize all Isaac had to do was probably just like blow on Abraham. That's probably not true. He, but he could have pushed Abraham and Abraham would have fallen down. Or let's say they're in a race. Do you realize Abraham's like, all right, Isaac, I'm going to kill you. Abraham, or Isaac could have been like, no, and started running down the mountain. I'm guessing Abraham would not be able to keep up. He's a hundred and something years old. So do you realize what faith Isaac had to have had in the character of his father? So just as Abraham had confidence in God, Isaac had to have confidence and faith in Abraham. And could you imagine this scene? They're walking up the mountain and, and Isaac goes, Dad, I've got the wood and you got the fire and the knife, but where's the sacrifice? Son, the Lord will provide. Trust. And could you, get to, could, could you imagine they get to the top of the mountain and, and they rebuild the altar of the Lord? Or sorry, they, they build the altar of the Lord and they put the wood and Abraham looks at his son and says, Isaac, we can trust our God. He is faithful and he has promised. Will you trust me? Sure, dad, I'll, I'll trust you. Isaac, I'm going to bind your hands. I'm going to put you on that, on that altar. And I'm, 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 going to bring the, I'm going to bring the knife down. But son, I know my God. And I know the character of my God. And he's promised through you. So you're, you're going to have to trust. I have no idea what the conversation would have been like. But do you realize Isaac was willing he actually gave up his own life. He was willing to lay down his life because of the faith that he had in his father. That is so stunning to me. 
when you look at this whole scene, I, I, I don't want to downplay, but I don't want to make too big of a deal of this either. But do you know where this whole thing's taking place? This is so crazy to me. Well, look, look at this. It's called the Mount of Provision. And at the very beginning of the passage in verse 2, God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah. So we know it's in the land of Moriah, and it's on one of the mountains that he's going to tell us. Well, as you follow this theme through, do you know where Mount Moriah happens to be? It just so happens to be this location where David buys a threshing floor. Look at this. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, it says that Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place where David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Okay, ponder this. God leads Abraham, this father, who has an only begotten beloved son, to a mountain. Well, what mountain was it? The Mount of Jerusalem. And here is Isaac, the beloved son, carrying his own wood up the Mount of Jerusalem to be sacrificed at the future site of Jerusalem. David builds, or, uh, buys the threshing floor and builds the temple there. Are you starting to get this? Jesus, 2,000 years after this scene, the beloved son of the father, carries wood up the same mountain. And is literally sacrificed on the mountain. Now, if you talk to Jews today, they will tell you that Abraham did the sacrificing thing on the threshing floor, which is where the temple was built. And, and maybe there's some good indication that could be true, and it would make sense that it's the mercy seat concept of the Holy of Holies, and, and there, there's that whole picture. But when, when I've studied it out, it, it makes far more sense to me, and the pattern makes far more sense that if Abraham, Abraham would not have stopped at the threshing floor. I don't know if you know the difference, but uh, they would do threshing. Here's the, here's the brow of the hill, the top of the hill, and it kind of slopes down, and then you have this, this kind of this flatter area, and that's where you do the threshing, and then you have the rest of the mountain. And at that brow, or sorry, that, that kind of that little piece down here, you do the threshing there so that as you take the chaff or the, the wheat and you throw it up, the wind comes off that brow of the hill, takes the chaff and blows the chaff away, letting the wheat fall. And so David buys the threshing floor for the, for the temple. And maybe that's where Abraham did the sacrifice thing. But it makes more sense in my head that he went to the top of Mount Moriah. And do you know what the top of Mount Moriah is called? In Hebrew, it's a place called Golgotha. And that just seems to be an interesting perfection. Regardless, and I don't think, in, in one sense it doesn't matter, it doesn't give us specificity, so we don't know. So it's presumption. But whether it's the threshing floor or whether it's actually Golgotha, the reality is, is that on that mountain, do you realize... It's the place of provision. And so when, when God stays the hand of, of, of Abraham, do you realize that Abraham, it says, called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. 
because, as it is said in this day, in the Mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. So think how cool this is. Abraham follows God's command, is about to sacrifice his son, and God says, stop, I've given you a ram in the thicket. And, and Abraham looks at this whole scene and goes, wow, this is the place where the Lord has provided. And do you realize that the undercurrent of this is God saying, you're right. Abraham, do you realize that there is coming a day where on this same mountain, it will be provided that there will be a loving father who has an only begotten beloved son. But in that case, I will not stay my hand. I will actually allow my son to be the sacrifice, the lamb of sacrifice, to be the provision that the world desperately needs. And it's not just a parallel, it's even happening on the same mountain. And it would only make sense to me that it probably happened in the exact same place too. But regardless of whether it's a threshing floor or at the brow of the hill, do you realize it's the mount of the Lord and on that mount it will be provided? What are we talking about? Jesus. The provision itself. Isn't it interesting here in, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus come to him. And listen, this is even before Jesus started the ministry stuff. This is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Isn't that interesting? Who takes away the sins of the world. That he's the provision. So, so, so here's Jesus coming to John. And John's like, whoa, there it is. That's the provision. That's going to be given as a provision on the Mount of Provision. Why? Because God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the one that provides. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 8. He who indeed, think about this, he who indeed did not spare his own son, he did not stay his hand, but delivered Jesus over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's the provision. So God is the provider, giving what? Himself as the provision. So the provider is the provision. That's beautiful. Now, here's what one commentator said about that Romans passage. Abraham did not withhold his son. In a similar sense, Paul wrote that God did not spare his own son, but gave, delivered him up for us all. And a form of that same Greek word is used of Abraham in the Septuagint. You have not spared thy beloved son. In other words, Paul's making a direct link in the Romans passage saying, it's the Abraham story. And though God stayed Abraham's hand, God said, I won't do that to me. I will actually fully allow my beloved son to be the provision, that lamb of sacrifice. Do you realize that God is a God of provision? I really, I really like how Warren Wiersbe defines this. He says, Jehovah Jireh, which means, listen to this, I love this. The Lord will see to it. That is, the Lord will provide. So when you say, that, say Jehovah Jireh, we're saying that God is the provider. But I really, I really love that statement. The Lord will see to it. The, the, Lord, the Lord's going to handle it. And that word Jireh, or Yira, it, it, the root of that, even in Hebrew, has this idea of sight. Uh, the Latin word provision, it's really interesting. We have the word provision. 
And if you split it in half, it's actually the two Latin words. Pro meaning beforehand and vision meaning sight. So when you look at this idea of provision then, it's to see beforehand, it's foresight, timely care, active foresight, or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for a future use or with suitable preparation. In other words, measures are taken beforehand, either for security, defense, or attack, or for the supply of wants. It's the act of providing or making previous preparation. So when we say God is Jehovah Jireh, we're saying God sees in advance, and he makes preparation for that. That he is going to provide that which is needed. Why? Because he knows what's coming. So again, here's the idea. God sees beforehand and makes provision for it. Now, we're not going to spend hardly any time on this. But do you recognize that that attribute or that nature of God shows up all over the place in the scriptures and in history? Uh, for, for example, you have Joseph. And you have Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers. And you're like, well, what good is that? Do you realize that in the fact that though his brothers meant evil against Joseph, God used it as the provision for what the people of God needed? And at the end of Genesis 50, verse 20, his brothers come up to Joseph and says, hey, don't get angry with us now that dad's gone. And Joseph's like, what are you talking about? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened to this day to keep many people alive. So what's Joseph's perspective? Yeah, you meant evil against me, but God turned that into good as the provision for our people. Isn't that beautiful? Or, or you have like the story of Esther and Mordecai says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not reached royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai's like, uh, do you not recognize, Esther, that God is a God of provision? And could it just not be that he puts you in this position for the need that we have right now? And it was. It was the Lord's provision. Or you look at David, right? David's about to face Goliath. And Saul's like, uh, you're, a, you're a youth. And David's like, uh-huh. What's the big deal? Listen to this. I love this. First Samuel 17, David said to Saul, your servant was shepherding his father's sheep and a lion and a bear would come and take a lamb from the flock and I would go after it and strike it and rescue the lamb from its mouth. Then it rose up against me and I would seize it by its beard and strike it down and put it to death. Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them since he has reproached the battle lions of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the hand of the lion and from the hand of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Do you realize that God actually had made provision in David's life? That before David faced Goliath, David supplied that which David needed to have the faith ready for Goliath. That God gave David a lion and a bear. And now he's looking at Goliath going, it's not a big deal. It's just a giant. And if God proved himself with a lion and a bear, God will surely do it with the giant. Do you see the provision in all this? Uh, C.T. Studd has this great story. C.T. Studd was, if you never read the, the biography, Cricketeer and Pioneer, you need to read it. It's phenomenal. But C.T. Studd, 
in the 1800s was considered like the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan or the Tiger Woods of his day in cricket, which doesn't impress most of us, maybe, maybe the Australians, but for the rest of us, it's like, oh, cricket. Sounds like badminton or something. It's just like, it doesn't sound very impressive. But, but in his world, this, this, he was like one of the top athletes of his day. And he not only had that, he, had, he came from one of the most wealthy families in England. God radically gets hold of his life, sends him uh, because of Hudson Taylor, goes over to work with Hudson Taylor in China, and then eventually India, and then Africa. But here he is with his wife, and, and they're in, you know, on, a, on a foreign nation. And you realize right before they left for the mission stuff, they gave everything they had away. They gave millions, like tens of millions of dollars away. And they just says, we, we want to trust our God. So all of our fame, all of our fortune, they just, they blew it. They just expended it all on God's mission stuff. Uh, George Mueller with the orphan houses got a big portion of C.T. Studd's money. Uh, Moody Bible Institute that's around in Chicago was started by Moody because of an endowment by C.T. Studd. So, I mean, Studd just <clears throat> give, give all this money away. And so here they are on the mission field and they have nothing. They have this bill that's due on Friday for whatever amount it was. And they go, God, we have nothing. We have no provision. We have no resource in the bank. Now, I don't know about you, but let's say God radically gets hold of LeBron James and LeBron James becomes a radical Christian and goes on the mission field. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of money. And if I'm going to give money to missions, which I love to do, I'm going to probably give it to people who need it. Like, I'm probably not going to be like, you know what, LeBron James, who has probably hundreds of millions of dollars, he's probably self-financing himself. I'm not going to send him a, a check for $20. That just seems, it just seems a waste. So I'm going, to, I'm going to steer my $20 over to Bob. And you're like, who's Bob? I don't know either, right? But he probably needs the $20 on the mission field. Nobody knew that the studs had given all their money away. They didn't tell anybody. They wanted to trust their God. So here they are, they're in the middle of this crisis. God, we, we have this bill that has to be paid on Friday. What are you going to do? Well, the problem is, is if someone is going to mail them a check, if someone's going to give them money, you realize that this is the day where you had to put it on a boat and sell it across the water and then you had to get on a train and then get it in and then you had to take it by donkey. And it takes months to get a letter to you. And Stud said, we can trust our God. He is faithful. And isn't it interesting and you've read the biographies before, right? All, all the good Christian biographies have these moments. They're great to read about. They're miserable to live, you know? But here, here's that moment. Here, here's the day the money is due, and they get some random letter by some older woman that you never met, and she says, I don't know why God stirred my heart, but here's, here's some money. And isn't it interesting that several months before they needed it, God saw beforehand, made provision through this little woman, and she sent money in an envelope to stud, and when they got it, it was on the day they needed it, and it was for the exact amount they needed. What do you call that? Provision. These, you just start reading Christian biography, you start to realize that God is a God of provision. God always supplies. Uh, Don Richardson, who wrote the, uh, the book Peace Child, I've been reading through his book, Eternity in Their Hearts. And one of the things he talks about in Eternity in Their Hearts is the fact that God in every people group has literally planted the gospel as like the peace child, if you ever read that book. It's like he's hidden eternity in the hearts so that as a missionary comes into this new tribe, 
they just need to look for how God has already readied the people for the gospel. And it's interesting as you read through eternity in your hearts, you start to recognize here's all these deeply pagan people and yet God is like ready them for the gospel to hear the good news and respond. But what is that? Provision. Do you recognize that God is a God of provision? That was true back then and what's beautiful about that name Jehovah and I've talked about this multiple times in the series, but the name Jehovah speaks of God's eternal uh, unchanging character it means he was, he is, and he forever will be. So when he says, I am Jehovah Jireh, he was a provider, he is a provider, he will forever be a provider. So he wasn't just a provider back in the time of Joseph and David and, and, and Abraham. He, he wasn't just a provider back in the times of like C.T. Studd. God is a provider today, folks, and he will continue to be a provision into the future. And the one who is a provider is the provision that we desperately need. But let me give you a quick reminder. Just because God provided one way in the past doesn't mean he will provide in the same way this time. And there's all these great stories in scripture. Uh, Moses strike the rock for the water. Moses speak to the rock. Now Moses didn't obey that one. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines have surrounded David and David goes, God, how do you want to deal with this? And God says, go after him. And then the Philistines come back and rather than presuming God's going to do the same thing, David goes, God, what do you want to do? And that time God says, sit back and watch what I'm going to do. Have you ever noticed like in, in, the, in the gospels, Jesus is healing blind people and he never does it the same way twice. This guy, he speaks this guy, he spits on the ground and puts mud on their face. This guy, he says, hey, I want you to go and do this. Some guys have instantaneous healing. Some guys have to wash and they get part healing and then they have to do more healing to fight. It's like God has a different way of doing it every single time. But he's always a God of provision. Which tells us that we have to trust and walk by faith in the God who is provision. We just can't presume upon, oh, God always does it the same way. Does that make sense? Can I just close with this? What, what does this mean for our life? Can I remind all of us that we are to live by faith and stand upon his promises? That just as Abraham trusted in his God and knew the promise, we have been given promise. Second Peter says that we've been given exceedingly and great and precious promises that are in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, in four, uh, Hebrews 4, 16 says this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you realize that he is the provision that we need to boldly enter in and seek? That, that as, he, as he says in chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become dull, but imitators, think about this, that you would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And by the way, in the context, he's talking about Abraham. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs of the promise? Us. His, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have taken a refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed, and one which enters within the veil where a forerunner has entered for us, Jesus having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That guy. Do you realize what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying we can have strong encouragement and hope. Why? Because God has promised and he cannot lie. If God makes a promise and then guarantees it with an oath, it is guaranteed to happen. So then when he says stuff like, you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, or, or when he says stuff like in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Why is it that we in the modern day are not living victorious and triumphant? When God says, hey, look, I will provide a way of escape. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And then we have this temptation. We're like, oh, no. Why is it when God says, do not fear? We're like, I'm going to fear. Why, why is that? If he has made promises and he guaranteed it with an oath and he says, I can't lie, do you realize it is guaranteed? Take it to the bank. What if we had that posture of Hene where the Lord says, Nathan, Hene, here I am. I'm ready. I'm in a posture of readiness. God, speak. Your servant listens. Lord, I have a predecided yes, whatever you want. What would it look like for you in your life? I don't know what you're facing. I don't know the trials. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know the finances or the family stuff. But what would it look like in your life if in every situation he says, God, I know your character. You are a God of provision. You are the everlasting God. You are El Olam. God, I'm going to put my hope and my trust in you. You have given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Therefore, I know I can have... In- overwhelming hope. Why? Because you have promised and you cannot lie. What if we would actually start to live according to his word? What if we would actually begin to recognize that God is a God of provision? I think that would change everything, wouldn't it? Paul at the end of Ephesians 3 says this, now to him, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine or understand according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is able to go exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine. Let's trust our God. Let's pray. Jesus, we do need you. God, would you allow us to realize that you are truly Jehovah Jireh, that you're not just the provider, you are the provision. And Lord, could we, with overwhelming hope, trust in your promises? 
Lord, could we have an audacious faith like Abraham that, that looks at the circumstances of life and says, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. I know my God. Lord, is it possible that in the middle of trials and difficulty and temptations that we could say, I, there's no reason to fear, there's no reason to give in, there, there's no reason to be pushed around because we know who you are. And Lord, if, if Abraham was so able and willing to walk by faith, Lord, there's no excuse for us. Lord, we have your spirit. We have the provision living within us. And God, we just ask that you would do something in and through our lives. We need you. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.